We are starting our new short summer series. We've had several um, uh, already this summer, and we have this one, and then we'll have one more as we kind of get our way into fall. But what we'll be talking about here over the course of this next four weeks are some different... I'm going to say debatable, but I don't, I don't really mean debatable, uh, but, but different kind of tricky, sometimes touchy subjects about life and faith. Uh, things that we might feel differently about. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to approach this series with the, the simplest way that I can encourage you to read scripture. Okay, and so we're going to have this conversation here a little bit uh, over the next four weeks, and, and I want you to kind of understand this practice okay, for how we're going to understand these topics. And then as you go to your own study, okay, as you go to read the Bible on your own, as you go to figure things out in Scripture, I would encourage you, be doing it in, in this kind of a capacity, especially when you're working through the New Testament. Uh, there's other prompts we can give you for working through the Old Testament uh, but right now, if we're focusing on the New Testament, you know, what does Jesus have to say about a topic? Boy, that's a really good place to start, isn't it? What does Jesus have to say? What I have to say is really um, important, I think, sometimes. Sometimes Carrie disagrees. My kids never think so. But what I have to say pales in comparison. Like it's not even in the same league as what Jesus has to say. Right? And so what does Jesus have to say about something? And boy, if I was going to start anywhere trying to figure out how to live this Christian life, I would want to start with what Jesus has to say. And then as I move forward, I'm going to want to see how the New Testament authors, the leaders of the early church, how they decided to put what Jesus says into practice. Okay, uh, And I'm going to read that in the New Testament, in the scriptures, in words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so I'm going to see what Jesus has to say, and then I'm going to see how the early church, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, ferrets it out. And only then, only then am I going to ask, what does that mean for me? Okay, and so as we look at this today, I want you to be, I want you to be focused in on what does Jesus say, and what does it mean? Not necessarily what did Matt say, not necessarily what did my parents tell me when I was a kid, what did my YouTube teacher, <laughs> YouTube teachers, that's funny, but some of you do that, what did my YouTube teacher tell me, what did my college professors want me to think, what did the denomination I was a part of put on me? No, we're going to do it this way. What does Jesus say? What do the New Testament authors do to live out what Jesus said? And then what does that mean uh, for us today as we get going? And we're going to start with the topic of baptism. And I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge up front that um, sitting in the room today, we have got people with... I'm going to say at least... No, five five different opinions on what baptism is, on what it's for, on how to do it, on when it should be done, okay? Um, and so as we get into this today, I want to just acknowledge up front that part of being in a non-denominational church, okay, in a church that's not part of a mainline denomination means that we have people coming to the church from all different backgrounds, okay? And that's all right. And it's one of the reasons why with this topic that it becomes especially important for us to say, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with Scripture. We're going to see what Jesus says. We're going to look at how the New Testament authors brought it together, and we're going to see what that says for us here today. Okay? And when I say baptism, I know right away some of you get kind of ho-hum. You're like, oh, baptism. Great. Love that topic. Listen to me. You should love that topic. Because when we talk baptism, I want you to know what we're talking about. We talk baptism, we're talking Jesus. Because baptisms are all about Jesus. When we talk baptism, we are talking something big and heavy and weighty, something necessary. We are talking about the gospel. We are talking about grace. We are talking about something that is so much bigger than we in this culture tend to make it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think. I want you to think of Christians in underground churches. 
people coming to Christ in places where it is dangerous to come to Christ. Places in China, some places in the Middle East, North Korea, different parts of Asia, where, where when you become a Christian, your life may very well be forfeit. And when you think about Christians in those places who say, I have become a Christian and now I am compelled to make a public declaration, a public declaration of baptism, knowing full well that my life may be in jeopardy because of it. But then they do it anyway. When I know that, when I wrestle with that happening around the world today as we speak, and I am going to see what Jesus has to say and how the church brought this out, listen to me. This is not something we get to make light of or we get to feel ho-hum about. This is a big um, deal. So let's jump in, and, and we're going to start with what Jesus had to say about this. And actually, uh, we're going to go with uh, first his example, Okay. Uh, so as we look at what Jesus said about these things, we start with his example in Matthew 3. And in Matthew 3, we have this scenario where Jesus, who um, is, is the Son of God, he's perfect. There's no sin in him, right? But he's going he's gonna to wander into this scenario where John the Baptist, his cousin, is, is baptizing people in droves. Now, it's interesting that he's baptizing people, Jewish people, in droves because something um, is, is that you need to know about Jewish culture is that the only time you needed to be baptized was when you were converting to Judaism, right? Uh, when, when you were born a Jew, you didn't need to be baptized. You were born, there's this physical birth into a spiritual reality, okay? You were physically born into this physical nation that was blessed by God and you had a spiritual spiritual heritage just simply by virtue of your birth. That's what it was like to be born a Jew in the Old Testament. And the only time you needed baptism uh, was part of the process when you were converting to Judaism. You also had to be circumcised and, and some other things, but, but that's the process that we, we went through. And so now all of a sudden we have John, John the Baptist. That wasn't actually his last name. Okay? Um, but he's John the baptizer because that's what he does. That's how we know him in scripture. Um, he is the one that scripture says will be like Elijah who will come first and will make straight the paths for the Lord. It says that John will come, uh, a prophet like Elijah will come, and he will make way the path of the Lord. He'll make straight the path of the Lord so that people will know and John knows his mission. He never claims to be the Messiah. He never claims to be who he's not. But he says, one's coming after me that I'm not even fit to have anything to do with. Okay? But he's there and he tells people, repent. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. And he baptizes them in the river. Time and time again, they come and they're baptized. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus comes to be baptized by his cousin John. And Jesus says, or I'm sorry, John says, uh, no, I can't baptize you. You have no need to be baptized. You don't have any repenting to do. There's nothing wrong with you. These people, this is, of course, you know, me taking it a step further than you'll read, but, but you can imagine John saying, these people, they need to be baptized. I really need to hold them under longer to really get rid of their sin, right? Like, like, I need to put them down and we're like, okay, let's wait for it, right? And we gotta, we gotta waterboard these folks to make sure that it's really, they've repented. I didn't know that could be a joke, I'm sorry. <laughs> Moving on. Anyway, here's what I'm doing, I'm baptized. But, but John says, you don't need that. But Jesus says, no, this is how it has to be. This is the way that it's supposed to be. And so John consents, and he, uh, by the way, moral of the story there, well, there's a lot of morals of the story there, but one of the first things we read is that do what Jesus says. It's just simpler, and it's easier when you just do what Jesus says. And Jesus says, no, this is the way that it has to be. You have to baptize me. It's the proper order of things. And so John consents, and he baptized Jesus, and this is what we read after his baptism, um, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove 
and settling on him. And of course, you know, the story says, this is my son uh, in whom I'm well pleased. And we get the story of Jesus being baptized, ushering in something new. One of the things that, that we hear about with baptism all the time, uh, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more later today, but we hear all the time that, well, baptism, um, you know, in the Bible is different than baptism today. If you didn't know that that was an argument, it is. It's called covenant baptism, okay? Uh, the idea that we baptize in a covenant kind of a way um, to, to bring people into this new covenant. Okay, but, but what I'm telling you is, is based on this scripture and based on what's happening here, that makes absolutely zero sense. That's not what baptism means as we read about it right here. Okay? And in fact, I, I can, we can show you this. Like, what happened is you were born into, physically born into a spiritual community. Okay? And John comes along and he says, that's not good enough anymore. Being physically born into this community of Israel is not enough for you to be right with God. You want to be right with God, then there needs to be a spiritual thing that happens in you that ushers you into the spiritual kingdom of God. It's not that you can physically be born and ushered in just because of your physical birth. It's not good enough anymore. There has to be something spiritual that happens in you. That's the call to repent. John doesn't say, come and dip your head in the water and you're all good. It says, repent. Turn from your sin. Have this new thing happen, this spiritual thing happen, and be baptized. And so we see by Jesus' example, we see what he says about baptism, that it's necessary. We continue. Here's, here's what he says with his command. Mark 16, 16, and Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and he says this. Anyone who believes, this first one's Mark 16, 16, anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. And that's the first time. It's the first time that we read about this connection, okay? Very specific connection between belief and baptism. We believe, we're baptized, and we'll be saved. Now, some people are going to point to this and they're going to tell you, we'll talk about this a little bit later too. They're going to point to this and tell you, see, there's, there's proof. This is one of the views um, that, uh, according to Jesus, you cannot be saved without being baptized. And they'll point to Mark 16, 16 and say, well, look, Mark 16, 16 tells me that if you're not baptized, you won't be saved. And what I'm going to say is, it's not what I'm reading, and that's not what you're reading. Okay, to read this carefully. Okay, what this says is, anyone who believes in a natural response of believing is to be baptized. Okay, when you look at the grammar there and the parts of speech, we see, we see that there's an imperative and there's a participle. The imperative is to believe. Anyone that believes and the participle by virtue of belief is baptized, okay, that's where salvation is. Anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. You can look at baptized there, okay, as a parenthetical statement. Okay, and it basically says this, if you believe, you will be baptized. Not that your baptism is going to save you, but that if you believe, then you'll be baptized. There's no other response. There's no other response that Jesus offers here other than if you believe, you'll be baptized. Continues, therefore, this is Matthew 28. This is him giving the great commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. Okay, those are the disciples that you're making. The imperative, go and make disciples. The participles, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching the new disciples to obey all the commandments I've given you. So here's what you do. You go and you make disciples, and once someone is made a disciple, what do you do? There's two things that you have to do. You baptize them, and you teach them. Some people have told me, often. Um, you know what? I know I should be baptized, but I just don't feel like I know enough. Like, I know, I know that I should be baptized. I know the Bible says I want to be baptized. I should be baptized, but, but I'm going to get baptized when I know more. I'm going to get baptized when I know enough. 
Again, it's not what I read, and we're going to get into that too as we start to look at questions in the New Testament, but we go and make disciples, and what does that look like? Well, we baptize them, and we teach them. Not we teach them up first, we get them as smart as they can possibly be, we have them know everything they need to know, then we baptize them. It's not the way it works, okay? And so as we read here, um, what Jesus says is Jesus says, very simply, when you believe, you're baptized. And our job as a church is to follow that command, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all of his commands. Not just teaching them the commands, but teaching them to obey all of his commands. Some of you are sick of me telling you to obey God's commands. Listen, what am I supposed to do? Right? I'm supposed to teach you. The church is supposed to teach you. We don't nag at you, but it's our job to teach you to follow God's commands. If we stop doing that, then we're stopping um, work on the Great Commission. Okay? And so we look at Jesus. He says, by example, there's something totally new here. It's not physically born into a spiritual heritage that's good enough anymore, but now you have to be spiritually born into this spiritual heritage. It's something new and better and different. You've got to submit to this new thing. And he says, and as a church, your mission is go and make those disciples. And as you make those disciples, you have two things to do. You baptize them and you teach them. That's what Jesus tells us about baptism. That's what by example and by word he has to say. And then as we get into the rest of the story, we're going to see how in the New Testament that plays out. Okay, we're going to see how this plays out in the New Testament. And basically, there's four questions that we're going to, that we're going to answer uh, that the, the New Testament authors kind of answer for us time and time again. Uh, the first one is, well, what's the meaning of baptism then? Why? Why do we do it? What's it mean? And there's really three answers to this that the New Testament authors give us and the, the early church leaders give us. One, it's a celebration of the grace of God. Colossians 2, 9 through 15, this is just a chunk of it here, says Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, right? Gotta love that. Spiritual circumcision. You know what that tells me? That tells me physically being born into the Jewish community is no longer good enough. But now there needs to be this new spiritual reality that happens. A spiritual circumcision. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sin nature, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins, but get this grace of Christ. God made you alive with Christ and he forgave your sins. Baptism is this great picture of the grace of Christ. And you know what's great about this? Is that it, sometimes we, we get this wrong. It's not just that Christ died for us. Christ died as a substitute for our sin. But follow along there. Because of the grace of Christ, he also rose again as a savior. He dies in our place. But that's not the end of the story. He bursts forth as our savior. And so baptism is this grand picture of the grace of Christ, and not just the grace of Christ, but it's also this great illustration of the gospel of Christ. Look at this in Romans 6, 3 and 4. It says, or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we also joined him in death? For we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Baptism is this grand picture. It's this great illustration of the gospel. That's why we do baptism the way we do. That's why we, we, we set the thing up over here. Um, and by the way, we have baptisms coming up um, the first week of August, and then the second week of August we'll have some more. And so if um, you'll have a chance to respond to that later, if, if you are feeling like, you know what, I've been thinking it's time to get baptized, time to get on that, um, this will be a great time for you to do that. But that's why when we do baptisms, that we, we do it the way we do. And I say what I say, and as, um, and, and as I put you in the water, 
uh, what do we say, buried in the likeness of his death, because that's what we read. It's this great picture of the gospel. We died when we were buried with Christ by baptism. So we're under the water, buried in the likeness of his death. But we don't leave you there. Because that's not the end of the story. Well, for a lot of reasons. Nobody wants to deal with that at church, first of all. But secondly, because that's not the end of the story. You're buried in the likeness of his death, but what's it say next? Okay, raised from the dead. So when we pull you out of the water, you're buried in the likeness of his death, and you're raised to walk in this newness of life. And that's what happens according to scripture, that buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in new life, that's exactly what happens at your moment of conversion. That's what happens. That new life starts at your moment of conversion. Scripture teaches us that. Grace by faith, that's where salvation is. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that, that when you are born again, you are this new creation. Your dead self is, or your old self is dead, your new self is alive. It's this picture. And it happens in that moment. And it's a great illustration of the gospel of Christ. And then the last thing, the last um, meaning of baptism that we read about time and time, time again in scripture. Oh, you want, there's a picture. It's not an accident. Okay, that's us. That's Carrie and I, um, and, and that's our good friends, Heather and Charles. And that picture is uh, several years old now, but we had moved here from the Quad Cities. Uh, Charles was a college roommate of mine. Um, and then... Uh, I wouldn't say that, that Charles is the one who led me to Christ because I became a Christian when I was, what, 14, 15 years old in middle school. But nobody ever taught me, or at least I didn't listen. Maybe one or the other. But nobody ever taught me what that meant. Okay, Christian, Matt, here's how you live this out in your life. Nobody ever taught me. I got to college, um, and I'd been up and down seeking, sometimes rejecting other times, and just really struggling. We, we've talked before about my walk um, before I got serious about God, and, uh, and Charles was the guy I met at college who was serious about God. And so Charles certainly is not the guy that led me to the Lord, but Charles would be a guy that, that led me to grow in maturity. And his wife, Heather, um, who I also went to college with, and, and of course they met Carrie when we started dating and were influential in our lives. Uh, Charles is a guy that I did accountability with regularly before I moved here. Anyway, we'd been here about a year and we were missing them terribly. And so one night we met at a restaurant somewhere in Coralville. Um, it was a place that was a little bit too fancy for us uh, because as we laughed and talked and laughed and got louder, I know you're like, Matt, you don't get loud. I got loud. Right? But that's okay because Charles also gets loud. People looked at us like, um, you're in the wrong place. Old Chicago is down the street. You should go there. And so we have every time since. Um, but, but I remember that night, and I remember it well because it was at a time when I was feeling low. Not because anything was bad. Not because Carrie and I were struggling. We weren't. Nothing was bad, but I was, I was feeling... I know it's ridiculous for some of you... But, I was feeling homesick. I know I live two hours away from where I was, and it's not that far, but I was feeling homesick. But this, this night, this was a good night. We laughed, we talked, we, we planned. Um, even just as we prayed together before dinner, there was just something good and right about it. And I love this picture because it reminds me of that. But you know what this is? This is a picture of that night. When I look at this picture, it gives me nice feelings and memories of that night. It helps me remember. It helps me revel. It helps me be there. But there's no way I have that night happening again and again when I look at that picture. All that is is a representation. Okay? The reason I put that up there is because I, I can't stress to you enough that baptism is an illustration of the gospel of Christ. It is not the gospel of Christ. Baptism is a picture of what God does in your life when you come to submit and follow and trust Jesus. The old man is dead, the new man is alive in its place. It's a picture of that. It's a grand illustration of that. It is not salvation. It is not salvation any more than that picture 
is Carrie, I, and, and Heather and Charles um, sitting around laughing and, and talking for hours on end. It's a picture. It's a great thing. It's a necessary thing. Those of you that, that keep photo, who's got photo albums filled with pictures? All right, who's got phones filled with pictures? <laughs> photo albums are these cool things that people used to have when you printed out pictures and put them in this acid paper and you set them in and close the lid. doesn't matter. It's a picture. They're important. Some people have told me that, that, that after they rescued their pets, some people before their pets in a fire, the thing they would take next is their family album. But you better believe they're going to grab their kids first because they're not the same. Okay? Anyway, the last thing, the last meaning of baptism is, is that it unites the family of God. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, again, this isn't all of it, but always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there's one body, one Spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. The key idea there in that text is unity. Baptism is, is a way that we unify the church. It's one of the reasons why we say we want you to be baptized as when you become a covenant member of the church, you know, or that you be willing to be baptized um, you know, as, as a covenant member of the church because it's this grand thing that binds us together. Because as a covenant members of the church, we've committed to three things, right? We've committed to loving God with everything we've got. We've committed to loving one another in the church, and we've committed to loving a dark, lost, dying world. But how does that work without baptism? See, if you're sitting here today and you haven't been baptized, you haven't submitted in obedience to God in baptism, I, I really seriously need you to think about that question. How does that work if you refuse to be baptized? You're like, I'm committing to love God with everything I have. But I'm going to ignore his first command. Believe and be baptized. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to love the church body. Except the one of the things, one of the things that binds us together in unity is this one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God. And I'm going to refuse and, and I am going to be on mission to bring the gospel to a dark and dying world, except what am I reading about in Matthew 28 that says, go therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them. How am I going to, how am I going to love the world and convert the world and share gospel truth with the world if I myself won't even submit to the thing that I'm asking them to do? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Back at Bethany, I served as the elder chairman. Um, I won't own this one, though, because I wasn't on the hiring team. Uh, but now, Bethany, if you don't know, Bethany was a Baptist church. Okay? And there's one thing you know in a Baptist church, and that's that if you're going to hire somebody, darn it, they are going to have been baptized as a believer. Except uh, Jerry, who I love dearly, mentor of mine, forgot to ask that question in the interviews. I went through the whole process and got ready, and, and, and hired Steve, great guy, hired Steve to be our, um, he, he led us in, in musical worship, and he was also our pastor of adult discipleship, okay? And we hired Steve, and uh, it was a few months later into the process when we were planning baptisms, and um, some of our kids wanted Steve to baptize them, because, you know, Steve was, was you know, part of the, the youth group part, and he's like, I, that Steve's like, I don't know if I can do that, I haven't been baptized <laughs> time out. Jerry, what'd you do? And we had long conversations, and, and ultimately, uh, where, where first he was like, I, you know what, I was baptized as a baby, I don't, I don't need to do that. I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's work through this. Let's talk through some of this. Let's, let's figure this out. And ultimately, um, what I can say is, you know, without going into great detail, that Steve's job was never in jeopardy. There was never anything like that that was on. But what it was is it was his moral authority to say to new believers, to say to these kids, I want you to believe 
and I want you to be baptized. Except I refuse to be obedient in the same thing. And I remember it vividly that, that Steve got up one Sunday and he preached a sermon on obedience and then um, stripped down to his, his shorts and t-shirt um, and hopped in the baptismal and submitted to the Lord in obedience. And then was able to participate in the baptism of some of our other folks that wanted to be baptized because he had reconciled what it means to be obedient. But it's hard for me. It's hard for me for you to say, you know what? I want to follow the biblical imperative to go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them, and, and add them to the church so that we can make an impact in the kingdom if you won't do the same thing yourself. It, it, it's a difficult proposition. Uh, and so baptism, not only is it a, uh, a picture of the grace of God, it's an illustration of the gospel of Christ, but it's also uh, a way that we're united in the family of God. Another question, how do we do it? Okay, well, based on what we just read about that baptism is a great picture of the gospel, uh, this buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in new life. Look at Acts 8, um, and you can see maybe the biblical example of how this played out. As they rode along, this is Philip talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, remember the story, Philip is, is walking, the Holy Spirit says, hey, go walk over there by that chariot. So he goes over and then he walks by the cart or whatever it was, and, uh, and this high-ranking Ethiopian official is, is in the car, or the cart, Sorry, there's no car. It's in the minivan. Right, the Winnebago bus, whatever. He, he's in there, and, and, and he's reading from Isaiah. And prompted by the Holy Spirit, Philip says to him, hey, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And the guy's like, no, how do I understand if somebody doesn't teach me? He says, is the author, Isaiah, is he talking? It's, it's the, the part in Isaiah where we talk about the suffering servant bruised and crushed for our transgressions and pierced and all of these things, talking about Christ and, and the trials that he went through on the cross. And, and, and the, the Ethiopian uh, says, was he talking about himself or was he talking about somebody else? And Philip says, well, let me tell you. And he shares the gospel message with this traveler. And the traveler believes. And they're walking or they're, they're riding along in the cart and he says, wait, stop, look. There's water. I see it. Is there any reason why I shouldn't be baptized? And, and Philip says, no. So what do they do? There's some water. Why can't I be baptized? So he ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him in the water. Okay, and that's the kind of mode we read time and time again in the New Testament, that they go into the water, that they come up out of the water. Okay? That's what the word literally means, baptizo. Uh, and and we, can, we can do some, some funky things with it, and we can make it maybe try to mean something different, but any clear reading of the language, uh, what it means is to dip, submerge, and clean. It's the word they use if you were washing dishes. Okay? It's the common word for washing dishes. And I don't know how you wash dishes in your house. Okay, I know you put them in the dishwasher. But when the dishwasher's full and your wife won't let you put pots and pans in there anyway, you submerge and you clean and you come out. That's the word there. That's what it means. Okay? Um, and so when you ask, well, Matt, what, what is the biblical model? What's the story of Scripture tell us about the mode of baptism, how we should do it? Well, I'm going to say, based on every clear account of baptism we read, it's very clear every account that talks about how it's done, talks about going into or out of the water. Here's what the word itself means. Here's how Jesus himself submitted to it. Here's how the apostles did it. Oh, and by the way, what we read in Romans is that it was this grand picture of being buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in this new life, and, and it becomes clear that, that I think the biblical mode is immersion. Immersion meaning put into and taken out of the water. Now, I get that that rubs some of you the wrong way. Remember I said at the beginning, we got at least five different viewpoints on baptism from start to finish in this church, and that's okay. 
okay? But if I'm doing what I said we were going to do at the start is we're going to look at what Jesus says, and then we're going to understand the best way that the New Testament authors understood it and applied it and figure out what it means for us, then I'm not sure I, how I come away with a different conclusion than this, okay? And, and so some of you are, are here and you're thinking, you know what, okay, but I became a believer in a church that sprinkled. I became a believer. I was following Christ. I said, I need to be baptized. They said, you need to be baptized. I said, yes, I want to be baptized. And I came up on a Sunday and they took the lid off the thing and they dipped their hand in and they sprinkled it on my head. Does it count? I can't tell you how many times I've had the conversation. Does it count? Of course it counts. This isn't about legalism. Right? This isn't about, oh, well, that wasn't good enough. I mean, that's a game we don't want to get into because what happens if I go to baptize you here, but then just the very tip top of your head didn't get all the way under? We better do it again just to make sure. I better hold you down even longer just to be safe. No, no, no. Of course it counts. It's not about it counting. Okay? Right? It's about obedience in following God to the best way that you have available to you at that time. If that was the best way you had available to you at the time, fine. Great. You were obedient. But if you're asking me, Matt, how are you going to teach it? Matt, how are we going to do it? The best I can understand is, is to be immersed and to be raised. And, and not because when you're fully immersed, it gives you more grace or it does more to you. But because that's the best way I think we can be obedient. Okay? All right, we continue. Another question. Uh, who should be baptized? Now, this is a tricky one. Again, lots of different thoughts about this in our congregation. Who exactly uh, should be baptized? Um, and, and I'm going to say, based on what I read in Scripture, based on Jesus' testimony uh, of teach them, um, go, make disciples, baptize, teach. Uh, he says in Mark 16, 16, believe and be baptized. And if that happens, then you will have new life. If not, you'll be condemned. And so what I'm going to say is, that anyone who has repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ ought to be baptized. Some of you, here and now, you're saying is, I believe, I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm following Jesus Christ, but I have not been baptized. And I would say that is something that you need to remedy because I don't read anything in Scripture. I never read anywhere in Scripture about a Christian who does not submit to baptism. And then here's what Peter says. First ever Christian sermon. Peter is, is preaching the first ever sermon. The Holy Spirit's come at Pentecost. They go. They're speaking in tongues. In, in that context, that means they're, uh, what we read is that they're speaking in different languages. So everybody is hearing the sermon in their own language right? So if you're there and you speak Greek, you're hearing it in Greek. If you're there and you speak Hebrew, you're hearing it in Hebrew. And if you're there and you speak some other language, German, I don't think they had German, you're hearing it in your language, okay? And there's this grand movement of the Spirit. And then everybody's like, man, these guys are drunk, right? That's, that's, that's apparently what it looks like when you're high on the Holy Spirit, right? To people that are not Christians, that people that don't have the Holy Spirit, when you are on fire with the living God inside of you, apparently it looks like you're drunk to people that don't know better because that was the explanation is, man, those guys are loaded. And Peter stands up and he says, no, it's nine o'clock in the morning. We haven't been drinking. Okay. Good for the, good for the apostles. Okay. He says, it's nine o'clock in the morning. We haven't been drinking, but here's what we have been doing. We've been studying and we've been praying and we've been learning all about the God of the universe and the one he sent. And he gives this grand, the first Christian sermon ever. And, and, and he gets to the point where he's like, and this Jesus that God sent, you killed. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day. And the people are cut. The word tells us they're cut to the core. And they ask Peter, and they ask the disciples, they ask the apostles, what can we do? Because Peter just said, you killed God. And they're like, what can we do? And Peter says, well, here's what you do. And this is the model that's followed all throughout Acts. Repent, 
Turn to God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I read an order there. I don't know how you can read that without reading a very clear order. What do we do? How do we work this? How do we put this into practice? Peter, you were with Jesus. You heard Jesus. You listened to Jesus. Jesus taught you the Holy Spirit. Now God is living inside of you. Jesus said, he'll come. He'll remind you of everything I taught. God is living inside of you. Okay, Peter, how do we become Christian? How does this work? What is this all about? And he gives you this order to follow. Repent. Repent from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Turn to God. Trust God. That's what it means. It says, turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Repent of your sin. Know it's sinful. Turn to God through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and then submit to baptism. So you're saying, well, who should be baptized? I'm going to say the only thing I read in Scripture, the only clear stuff I read in Scripture, based on what Jesus said and how the disciples taught it, in the early church was the people that should be baptized are people that have repented of their sin and turned to follow Jesus. And that when you do that, the right response is baptism. Now, I know that's another tricky one. And I know it's another tricky one because um, some of you in this room have done it differently or had it done differently to you, or some of you in this room have chosen to do it with your children differently. And so I get that this is touchy, but that's one of the reasons why we do sermons like this that start with, what did Jesus say? How did the New Testament authors get that to be the case in the early church, and then what do we do? And, and I, one of the main things that we have to deal with here is the baptism of infants and what it means why we do it, okay? And I'll tell you why we do it as a culture, why it's been done as a church, why historically it's been done. And it's been done because we weren't sure what to do with second generation Christians. See, the argument you're going to get, and, I, and it's fine, um, the argument you're going to get is that, well, Jesus taught to a world that didn't know Jesus. And the disciples went and they planted a church among people who didn't know Jesus. Now, we've got churches established who are having babies, and the babies are being born into the church, and so now we're not doing it the same way they were doing it here. And so one of the reasons we have for this idea of infant baptism is that, well, we have now people that are part of this church community as babies. Well, that was never the case when this was taught. Well, first of all, I'm going to disagree with that, okay, because over the course of the 30 or 40 years, um, even into Revelations, the 50 years that the New Testament was written, I'm imagining there were some pregnant women that were Christians, and the New Testament authors never decide to tell us that the rules change for their children. On top of that, I read a very specific order. Repent, turn, get baptized. And I'm not sure how we can get around that. Uh, one of the other things that, that's happened in our culture, and this one, so I'm going to say, if you were here and you were baptized as an infant, I'm not mad at you or your parents. I'm just not sure it's the way to go. Okay? But there are a lot of churches that teach infant baptism as a mode of dedication. So you're baptized, we, we baptize our children as infants, and when we do that, what we're doing is we're actually promising them to God. And we're saying, okay, God, we're, we're offering you our child, not in a weird, creepy sacrifice kind of a way, but in a living sacrifice kind of a way. We're offering you our children, and we promise before God and before the congregation, that we will strive to raise this child in the way that they should go, and we're holding them sacred um, until the day that they choose Jesus, okay? Um, so 
a lot of times infant baptism was taught and happened in a church like this one. In fact, we, we've done that, okay, um, in a way that says we're holding this kiddo for the future, okay? We know that they're not saved because of this. We know they need Jesus, but this is the promise that we're making and we're trusting God for, okay? We use dedications instead of that, partly because of the cultural confusion, okay? But that's one of the reasons why we see baptisms when, when, when kids or adults, when they choose to be baptized, when they've said, I have repented for my sin, I've turned to God, and, in the, and, and I'm trusting Jesus on the cross, and I'm going to be baptized. You know what that's so awesome about that? Is that's a celebration, especially if they were dedicated, or if, if they were baptized as a little one in dedication. I mean, sometimes we see that as, oh, well, they're saying that first one wasn't good enough. I'm like, that first one was something altogether different. What this, though, is, you made a promise back then, and now we're seeing it come to fruition. I mean, it was the words we say is like, well, we know they need Jesus, and so we're saying, God, we're going to commit to raising them to need Jesus, and the church is going to come alongside and help. Then we get to the part where they say, I need Jesus, I follow Jesus, and I'm baptized, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in new life. That should be something that we as a church celebrate like crazy, because the promise we made and the commitment that we made, the covenant commitment that we made to that family to help them raise that child has come to fruition in someone saying, I follow Jesus for myself, in my heart, my own way, I go there. And that's how we see it. And the other reason we don't, we don't love to do infant baptisms is because it's been hijacked in our culture. I want you to read these two things. These are two things that, that I found um, um, on... These are, these are Catholic statements um, about the sacrament of baptism. Okay, Not mad at folks from the Catholic Church. If you're here today from the Catholic Church, not angry at you. But we do have a disagreement in what you've been taught. Here's one of the things that's readily available on your sacramental bookmarks or your sacramental wheels that you'll find in most Catholic churches, okay? This is what it says about baptism. Bath, baptism is a sacrament of salvation allowing God's grace to enter the human soul. That somehow baptism allows the salvation purposes of God to come into your life. That without baptism, that can't possibly happen. And all I would say is, show me. I don't see it. It's not here. Okay, and then the other thing we read is that holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to life in the Spirit, and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, we're freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. You know what I read does that? You know what I read when I read scripture? What I read that frees you from sin and allows you to be reborn as sons of God? The cross of Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ. I read that it is by grace that you've been saved, not by works, not even baptism. That's my statement. So that none of you can boast And because this is a popular teaching, we tend to avoid infant baptism, even when it means something other than God is saving you through it, because we don't want people to be confused. And that still happens. It still happens. Somebody will die. It happens. People die. And they'll be telling me about it. And I'll ask the question I always ask. I always have to ask this question if I don't know the person, because, I mean, this person died. That's a big deal. And so my question always is, were they, were they a Christian? Were they a believer? You know what I often hear as a response? Yeah, they were baptized. Infant baptism is misleading at best. It's damning at worst. When we get confused about what it means and what it doesn't mean. And when people are telling me, oh, yeah, yeah, they were a believer, I know this because when they were six weeks old, I had them baptized. And they say, how does that mean believing? And so, again, the question comes up, it's like, what do I do if? 
right? Does my baptism count if I did it when I was six weeks old or a year old? Or does it count if that's what the choice was? Or does it count for my kids if that's... And I'm going to say when you ask the word, does it, when you ask the question, does it count, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, does it count? The question is, have I been obedient? See, what I read in Scripture is that you are to believe, you are to turn from your sin, and you are to be baptized. So the question of, does it count, that's a question that's confused. The question of, have I been obedient, that's a question that's important. And so there's too many scenarios for me to go into every single one, but I know some of you are sitting here and you're like, well, when I got baptized, it was either done to me when I was little, and so it had nothing to do with my obedience to follow God, it was done to me, okay? Uh, it's hard for a six-week-old to decide, you know what, following Jesus today. It's hard for a 41-year-old to decide, you know what, I'm following Jesus today. Some of you, we've talked, you got baptized so that you could get married, right? You, you were like, I want to get married. Church says, oh, you can't be married unless you're a member of the church. Can't be a member of the church unless you get baptized. So next thing that happens, I got baptized so that I could get married in the church and never go back through the door. But you and I both know as you sit and process that you weren't a believer at that point in time. So here's what I'll say. The question of does it count is the wrong question. The question of was I obedient, that's what counts. Last thing, um, when, when should it happen? Read Acts 8, 12. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result, many men and women were baptized. They didn't go to take classes. They didn't go get it worked out. They just were baptized. As soon as. As soon as you become a Christian or as soon as you realize the importance. That's when this should work for you. See, some of you are, are sitting here today and you're thinking, well, you know what? I became a Christian 20 years ago and I never read the New Testament at that time or maybe I was never taught that baptism was so important and so you know what? Time has passed. I just, I'll skip it, right? Like it's weird now. Like I, I've talked to people that are like, well, it feels really weird as uh, somebody who's been a Christian for this long, I've been teaching, I've gone to visit people that are sick, I've prayed for people, we've done all of this, it's, it's just weird now, so now I'm going to skip it. Gonna, oh man, obedience to God is bigger than that, isn't it? Isn't it bigger than your attitude about, oh, it's weird? Some of you are like, well, it, it will, it'll feel weird, I don't want to have to get wet in front of all those people. Uh, come on. As soon as... As soon as I realize it's important. Some, some of you are like, well, um, you have questions about your kids. Well, how do I know if my kids are ready? Well, that's pretty basic. Do your kids understand what Jesus did for them? Have they committed to following Jesus? If they have decided to follow Jesus and they understand that baptism is a picture of that, they're ready. I was blessed to baptize my kids when they were, oh, gosh, Travis was 10 Aubrey was seven. Was their theology perfect? No. Does it mean they'll never struggle with walking the Christian life? Absolutely not. But does it mean that they knew what it meant to follow Jesus and they knew that baptism was a picture of that and that they wanted to express it? Absolutely. So that's what we did. Some of you as parents, you've got to figure that out with your kids. I know some of you have kids that have been asking. We've got to wrestle through that. Okay, but that's baptism in a nutshell, and, and I tell you what, I know that it steps on toes, and I'm sorry about that, and I'm not at the same time. I'm sorry about that because because I, I don't want to have arguments, I, I don't want to cause division, I don't want to drive wedges where there don't need to be any, but I'm not because all I can do is tell you, here's what Jesus says. Here's his example. Here's how the New Testament authors, the people that were closest to Jesus, here's how they taught it and lived it and practiced it in the early church. And so therefore, this is what I think we need to be about as Christians. Ask the praise team to come up. Uh, we're going to pray. And uh, what we're going to do is we pray. Actually, praise team, stay where you're at just a second. I kind of forgot what I was doing for a second. Um, they are going to come up. It's going to be okay. 
Um, but, but we're going to pray. And we've got a little video of Malia, um, a testimony that she shared about her decision to be baptized. And her story of baptism is interesting. She was one of those that was baptized as a kid, as a, as a young child. Um, and then as she walked away from the church or came back to the church or vacillated with the church, but it was at a point where she's like, I'm going to get serious. And, and, and her baptism was this great picture of a promise that her mom and dad made for her, a prayer that they'd had for her since the beginning. So we're going to see that, and we're going to do that, and, and that'll be good. And, and I just, um, as we watch that, I want to encourage you. On your bulletin, uh, you'll see this little part down here, this tear-off part. Okay? Uh, one, we said if you're visiting with us today, please fill that out, and you can put it in the offering plate as it goes by. That'll be your offering for joining us today. But, but if you're thinking, you know what? We've been talking about this. I've been praying about it. God's put it on my heart before, but I really do need to submit to baptism. Well, this is, this is your great opportunity to do that. Just mark that on here, and, and then I'll be able to get in touch with you, or, or Vince or Malia. Somebody will be able to get in touch with you and make sure uh, that we're ready for that in a couple of weeks when we have our baptismal services, okay? Um, but, but I want to encourage you to do that. All right. Last thing that I'll say about baptism. It has to do with Carrie. I met Carrie at a Super Bowl party. Super Bowl was even over by the time I got to the party. Right? I mean, like, I worked until 10 o'clock. Super Bowl was over, but the lady I worked with, actually, she worked for me at the time. She was like, hey, having a party. You should come to the party. Got off work and lived alone. Go home, go to bed. I could go to a party. So I went to the Super Bowl party. Carrie was there. I met Carrie, and apparently Carrie went home that night and told her sister, I met the guy I'm going to marry. I went home that night and didn't tell anybody anything. <laughs> but we met. We dated. It was awkward. I wasn't good at it, dating. Um, I was hard to get along with. I was, I was irritable. I had two jobs, so all of our dates were at like 10.30 at night until 1.30 in the morning. Um, so then I could go home and go to bed and wake up and be teaching an at-risk junior high school class at 8 a.m., get done with that and go work at a residential treatment center from 2 to 10, get home and, and date Carrie again. It wasn't awesome, but God was gracious. And I remember vividly the day that Carrie and I got married. We didn't do that right either, but we did it the best we could. And we gave our vows, and we talked about how God had blessed each of us, and we talked about commitments that we were making to one another that, that thanks to God's grace, we've been able to maintain. And then there was this moment where... I got this. Like it was this grand, I mean, we were already married, right? Like it was, the, we had said our vows, we were married, and then we exchanged the rings, right? It was this grand exchanging of the rings. We got these, and, and actually it switched a couple times because I broke one and then I lost one, and you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Carrie's has switched a couple times because she's decided it needed to be different, but I think she's actually back to the original, so that's cool. But, but then I got this, and it was this great big grand picture. It didn't make me married, but, but it was this thing that I get to wear and celebrate that tells everybody. And it's not just like, hey, he's got a ring, stay away from him, I know, right? Everywhere I go, no. <laughs> it's not a true statement at all. But you know what? This is part of the celebration of my commitment and my life with Carrie, it's more than just a symbol. It's something grander than that. That's what baptism is. It's not your salvation, but it's this grand picture. That's why when you're baptized, we say, bring everybody, especially people that don't know the Lord, because it's this great picture of what God's done for you. 
Ask the praise team to come up. We're going to pray and watch that video. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your salvation work that was done on the cross, that Jesus Christ uh, died as a substitute, but then rose as a savior. And God, we thank you for, for that truth and the love that you have for us that's crazy. And God, we just, we thank you for, for the way that you work things out in scripture and, and the desire that you've given us, the desire that you've given us to follow you in obedience. And so God, if you're poking at people to follow you in obedience this morning, I just pray that, that, uh, that you'll continue to work on them and that they'll ultimately submit to you. Father, we take a moment and pray for those in the congregation that are hurting or sick that need you. We also pray for the offering that we're about to collect. We pray that you'll take the offering, that you'll bless it, that you'll multiply it, that you'll do great things with it, not because blessed hope is great, but because you are. God, we just love you and we praise you. Amen.